As I uh, open up this morning, I want to talk to you about just a reality of familiarity of uh, this concept that I, I am really, really comfortable with what I am familiar with. And even as I, um, you know, grew up a certain way, the further I have moved uh, from the time that I grew up in and the space that I grew up in, I find that it's really easy actually for me to gravitate back towards the way that I grew up. Uh, it's really easy for me to gravitate back towards things that were wired into me. So let me explain to you exactly what I mean by this. Um, you know, in my house, uh, I try to take care of my job to do the dishes, and I try to take care of my job to, like, manage things well, keep things clean, and, uh, you know, clean up my clothes and all of this stuff, right? Like, I, I, I have things that I'm trying to do better at. I'm very intentional about it. Now, I'm not the best at it, but I'm working on it, right? So this crazy thing happens. Now, I know that I have a lot of parents in this room, and you parents, uh, you have watched your kids. They're grown in their 20s, their 30s, or whatever. Uh, you've watched your kids grow, and, and some of you have sent them off, and you've watched them be successful and build homes, and some of them have started to build families families for themselves, and that's really, really good. And then something happens when your kids come home. They stop being responsible, and it drives you insane, right? Like, they come home, and it's just like they're back to the way things were when they were a kid, right? Like, uh, you know, mom and dad take care of the dishes. Like, people clean up after me. I can come. Like, this is the good life, right? The same thing happens to me when I go back to my parents' house. And here's the thing. I've tried to be responsible, okay? So I don't want I've, like, I've worked hard. When I return to my, my home, like, I try to do the dishes, and my mom goes, no. You don't do that. I do the dishes here, right? She won't let me do it because she's like, you're, you're here to enjoy this, right? I want to take care of you, right? So this, you see now, like, part of my problem, right? So, uh, so yeah, this is what happens. I come home and, like, you know, I'm able to sink back into what I grew up in very, very quickly, right? It, it, it doesn't take any time at all. Uh, this happens, too, like, with the reality. I work uh, kind of hard to, to make sure that I am eating properly, right, in my just normal life. I, I just, uh, I, I know that there's this thing in me uh, that will kind of enjoy food to the maximum, right, as much as I can, especially anything sugary. I love sugary things, right? So, uh, so I work hard to try to, to, to maybe avoid as much of that as I would want to have. Uh, I go home. I can't, I've, there's not been one time that I have went back home that I have gained less than six pounds when I go home. And we're talking like in a four-day period, y'all. <laughs> like, I, something about me just kind of slides back into what was really familiar, right? So there's this pull, this pull of the way that we grew up that, that kind of uh, brings us back to patterns that we are very used to. So we're going to take that concept and walk with it as we look at what happens to Israel in our passage today. So we're back in the book of Exodus, and this is what it says in Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down. 
So, uh, so at, at this point, Moses has been up on the mountain. He has received uh, the book of the covenant from God. God has dictated things clearly to Moses, and he has uh, inscribed it on tablets of stone. Uh, and, and then in the midst of this, God has also given instructions to Moses about what the tabernacle is supposed to look like and, and uh, you know how they're going to worship in Israel. Right? He's given them all these instructions. So now we're done with this, right? Like, and Moses has been up there a long time. He's been, up, he's been up on the mountain receiving these instructions from God. And if you'll remember, after the Ten Commandments came, uh, you know, God came down and he was talking to the Israelites. And the Israelites were like, hey, we don't want this guy to talk to us. He's really scary. Uh, so you go up and you just listen to him and come back and tell us what he says. And then, you know, whatever he says, the things that he's already told us, the things that he's going to tell us, you know, we'll do it. We'll just do whatever he says. You just need to tell us. And so, so Moses goes up on the mountain, and he is up there for a long time. Exodus 25, 15 through 18 says this. It says, Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. So what they know, what they see is this glory, this cloud, which is really powerful. There's also been like trumpets and thundering, right? This, this moment that is really scary. And Moses is going up into the middle of this frightening presence. And so he goes up and, uh, and says, Moses entered the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm like in the desert and I don't know what's going to happen next, I'm like sitting here and I'm like, okay, Moses is going to come up. He's going to come back down sometime. You know, at about day 10, I start to wonder, gosh, like I wonder if he's okay. And he doesn't come back down for 30 more days, right? So there's this like situation where Moses has gone up into the midst of this like really powerful presence and he's not coming back down. And so there's this challenge that's being presented to Israel. In fact, we can see uh, in verse 18, it goes on, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you need to know the Israelites are terrified of God's presence. They cannot encounter God's presence and just be like, oh, that's cool. Like now, God, God has saved them. God has protected them. God has provided for them. God has walked with them through the desert. He has, he has done amazing things for them, and they are utterly frightened of him. And Moses has gone up there. Moses is like the one person, by the way, who stood between them and God. Right, the, the one person who tells them what to do next. And now they're 40 days stuck in the desert without knowing what to do next. So in the midst of this, it can raise up a little bit of FUD, right? <laughs> Fear, uncertainty, and doubt can kind of overwhelm you in the midst of these circumstances. Right, they, and I just want you to be aware of this. Whenever these moments that reveal FUD come up, they're moments of testing, right? They're moments God actually allows in our life to see like what is the genuineness of the faith that is there to reveal to us what is the genuineness of the faith that is there. So that's the, that's the first thing that happens in the midst of challenges like these. The second thing that happens is that these moments of testing will cause us to scramble for something trustworthy, they cause us to scramble and fight and grasp for, for something trustworthy. So I want to give you a warning this morning. 
And we're going to see it play out with the Israelites. When faith is tested, idols will pull you. When faith is tested, idols will pull you. Let's see this play out. Exodus 32, 7 and 8. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So what did they do? Verse 8. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Israel, right now, in this moment, we, uh, God is talking about them. They are committing idolatry. Now, for what it's worth, this is actually like not surprising. Because Israel grew up with idolatry. Right? That's what was familiar to them. That's the, the place that they grew up. Egypt was full of various idols, things that you prayed to, things that you worshipped that would do particular things for you. And so this was common to them. And so what do they feel in the midst of this moment? Well, they feel powerless and anxious. What do they want to feel? What do you want to feel when you feel powerless and anxious? You want to feel in control and secure. Right? So, so in the midst of these circumstances, what do they do? Like they, They're trying to figure out how do we overcome this flood that we're facing. Well, they're going to revert to what they know, what is familiar with them. So, so I'm going to show you a picture. This is the Egyptian god Apis. And, and Apis, uh, it's really interesting that they chose Apis in this moment to build an idol to and worship. Apis is known for one really kind of interesting thing. Apis mediates between human beings and spiritual power. Right? Like, so, so whenever an Egyptian would encounter frightening power or would even seek to have some more powerful God under control, they would appeal to Apis and worship Apis and get Apis to kind of stand between them and that God. What's really interesting here is that Israel does not deny Yahweh. They don't go the route of denying Yahweh. Instead, what they do is they say, we need to get one of the Egyptian gods that we're really familiar with to stand between us and Yahweh and get Yahweh's power under control. So, so Yahweh is massive and he's powerful and he is frightening and he gave them these rules and they are not really thrilled about any of this and so they feel restricted. They feel pressed upon by Yahweh, their solution. Let's get one of our old gods to mediate for us. So then, you know, on the surface for us, we don't have statues that we worship, really. Like, we don't have things that we build and bow down to, and right? So, so seeing the immediate application of idolatry is kind of challenging, but luckily in the New Testament, People come along and show us this idea of idolatry and how it carries over into the heart, right? So we're just going to take a second and understand what's happening because we could look and say, yeah, I'm not going to bow down to a golden statue. That's no problem. But let's explore what happens with idolatry in the heart. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14, it says this. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. So we've seen temptation now three times in this one verse. And then in verse 14, he says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So what he's doing is he's taking the concept of idolatry and he's saying, when you give in to your temptations, you are committing the act of idolatry. So there's a link between idolatry and our temptations. And we look at the the bulk of the New Testament. Idolatry is not just an outward physical problem. It is a problem of the heart. Right? So because we all know we're not particularly tempted to build a golden statue and bow down to it and dance around it when things get crazy. But you know what I can do? I can get really tempted to uh, control my life by being stingy with my money. I can get really tempted to comfort my pain by watching a few hours of TV. I can get really tempted to find security and hope, maybe in a different political leader or a different political agenda that I think better fits me. I can get really tempted to gain approval by making much of my own successes to others. Right, so so functionally... I can end up doing with any of those things that I named what the Israelites did with the calf. So, so then let's, uh, let's ask a question for clarity, just to clarify for us as we are people who live on this side of the story of Israel, um, what is an idol? So Tim Keller uh, provides a really helpful description of an idol in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So, you know, we will try to derive identity and significance from idols. We will rely on idols for comfort and security. We will pursue idols to control our environment. We will hold on to idols when they even start wrecking parts of our lives. We will use idols to earn affirmation and love from others. So let's, let's really simplify the idea of an idol. An idol is anything to which you give love, trust, and obedience before God. Anything to which you give love, trust, and obedience before God. So those words, love, trust, and obedience. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the way that Israel is spoken of as relating to idols, they either love those idols, they trust those idols, or they obey those idols. Anything to which you give love, trust, and obedience before God. And so church, idols will ultimately lead us to do two things. They will lead us to, number one, neglect God and his instruction, and number two, neglect and wrong our neighbors, right? This is what idols do. So, so I want you to watch as they gather around this God who's supposed to be mediating between them and Yahweh and somehow controlling Yahweh's power for them. They come to this God. Watch how this God pulls them in. Watch how deep it goes. Exodus 32, 17 and 18. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted... He said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. 
But then he like gets a little closer, goes a little further down the mountain, listens a little more, 18. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. You know, Moses, he would come into the camp after this moment. He'd look and he'd find them dancing. And just for what it's worth, when it says dancing, it means something far more than just dancing. Right? These people are engaged in full-fledged debauchery and ownership of this idol. They are celebrating this thing. Now, what weren't they doing when they stood in Yahweh's presence before? They were not celebrating. They were shaking, they were afraid, but something about putting this idol there has made them feel, we are free, because this God will stand on our behalf before Yahweh. And so they, they love this idol. They come to kind of boldly take their adoption of this idol and they engage in all sorts of things that Yahweh put off limits and they said, we don't have to worry about it because this powerful idol is standing in our place for us. And so they've moved from being saved and rescued and awestruck at who God is to celebrating and worshiping a statue when God had expressly said to them, hey, don't do that. So remember, when faith is tested, idols will pull you. So let's talk about the pull of idols and exactly how it is that they take us from one point to the other. So this is my uh, idol. Imagine this might be whatever your idol is right here. And idols are, are kind of like alien spaceships and that they have powerful tractor beams that they put out here and they attempt to pull you in. So let's, let's watch how the progression of being pulled into the idol works. The first thing that happens is the test, the test that creates fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So we have our test here, right? This test is common to everybody. Everybody gets into the middle of the test. Everybody faces the test, right? Well, there's nothing that we can do about it, but then something happens. Like, you could, in the middle of the test, have reminders of God's presence, the eternal God who is strong. You could have reminders of his strength, reminders of his power, reminders of what he says about you because you are his Right? You could have that, or you could let the FUD keep overwhelming you. Right? You could let it keep staying in front of you. And if you do that, the next thing that happens is you highlight your desire. And your desire is that thing that you grew up with. That, that thing that gave you a sense of comfort. You, you remember something powerful from your past. And it's not always necessarily something powerful from our past, but our past provides the most powerful things for us, right? Your desire highlights something to you that will be powerful enough to ease the stress of the FUD, to ease the stress of the test. And so the desire shows you something more powerful. So James 13 and 14 says it like this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one but. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Right? There's something in your desire. Right? God allows the test, but our desires offer us a way to kind of not trust God and trust something else. So, uh, so example of this for me. When I was in college, in my freshman year of college, I was just uh, experiencing loneliness and sadness, right? Like, this was my FUD for the moment. This was my test. And, and you know what I noticed? I noticed that my peers, when I was lonely and sad, my peers seemed connected and happy. What did my peers do that I wasn't doing? My peers were partying and having fun, and I was alone, kind of staying in my dorm room and, and whatever. And so... You know what I decided? Rather than trusting and loving and obeying God, I decided that the best thing for me to do was to party with my peers and get drunk and enjoy that whole atmosphere to make a fool of myself knowing full well that this put me in direct disregard of what God wanted for me. So, so instead of trusting, loving, and obeying God, I trusted, loved, and obeyed the idea of having fun with my peers over simply enjoying and honoring God himself. So, so why? Why did I do that? Because my desire kept coming back and coming back and coming back, and I justified that desire, and I said, this is powerful enough to get me out of the test, and so it took me another step in. So the next thing that happens, right? Wait, before I go on. So notice, notice for the Israelites how powerful their desire is, right? Because they had ample opportunity to stop, right? How long are we talking? We're talking 40 days and 40 nights. For what it's worth, you don't build a wooden idol and cover it in gold in a day. It takes a lot longer than that. Uh, probably over the course of, let's say, 10 days. They're putting collection plates out for the gold. They're, uh, they're carving the wood. They're chopping down the trees or whatever they have to do to kind of find it. They're, they're putting the pieces together. And you know what's happening the entire time they're doing this? God is feeding them manna. God is giving them food. God is making sure that they can eat in the midst of this. And they still, every day, walk deeper and deeper. Don't give a second thought to what they're doing. And, and so this offered them. What, what did the mediating idol offer them? As they stepped further and further with disregard. And they, there was like clear premeditation again and again and again. Each step that they took, what did it offer them? It offered them a chance to be free from the weight of Yahweh's power. It offered them a chance to disregard his laws and have what they wanted without worry because the calf would control his power for them. Right? They weren't dancing when they got the Ten Commandments, but they're dancing now. So desire then moves to the action, the disloyalty. That's the next step of the poll. Oh. There we go. It didn't fit. I'm sorry. Disloyalty. So this is when you take your obedience and trust and love from God and in an action give that obedience and trust and love to an idol. 
Like this is the action where you cross the line. This is the decision to bow down and worship. This is the desire to to dance. This is the action for them that crosses the line. And then once you've done, once you've been in disloyalty long enough, you get to a place of adoption. So this is where you've not only kind of been in the test, you've walked through, but now you're openly celebrating this thing that God has told you you should not have. Now you are high-handed about it, right? You, are, you have no problem just pointing out that this is what I'm doing and this is okay and we're going to make much of this thing that God has told us not to do. This is exactly what happened with Israel. They started with the test and through the test they got pulled into the idol and it's what happens with us if we are not aware and intentional. Okay, so can we take two minutes to kind of talk about what we're really doing with idolatry. Like, you know, we're going to look at God's response in just a second. And, and as we look at that response, it might be tempting for us to kind of judge God and uh, say, how could he be so, like, mean or intense or angry? And uh, if we don't get really clear about what's happening, that temptation is going to be really, really easy. So let's talk about what actually happens with idolatry. God's world is broken because of idolatry. Like God's world is broken because of idolatry. Like the thing that he created and he poured his life and his love into is falling to pieces and crumbling because people chose to worship created things rather than their creator. So how does this happen? Human beings, time and again, put created things in the position of highest authority for them. And then not surprisingly, those things make really crappy gods because they, have, they, they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the power, they don't have the ability to sustain creation on their shoulders. And, and so then the reality that happens is that these things, when we put them in that place, they disrupt human-divine relationship. They create chaos within human relationships And ultimately, they allow spiritual death to have full reign in creation. So hear me on this. It would be wrong of God to simply let this go. It would be wrong of God to simply let this go. So let's watch how he responds then. Uh, Exodus 32, 9 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He's saying, hey, uh, don't worry about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of them. Uh, We're going to end this group, and we're going to start again with you. So, So get this. God loves creation too much to sit passively by while his people openly participate in the corruption of that creation. So God is rightfully angry when we put counterfeits in his place because creation was not designed to function like that. So God says, when my people pursue idols, they do so at threat of my wrath. But one of the amazing facets of God's character is that he's always preparing a way, right? So he has built Moses for this moment. When he is standing, and and Moses in the middle of this moment, he's been frustrated by these people, but he also knows God's plans and God's heart. And so so Moses could have said, okay, God, whatever you want, but what he does instead 
is he intercedes for his people. He prays for his people. Moses remembers God's heart and, and, and prays God's heart back to God when he intercedes for the people. And so in uh, Exodus 32, 11 through 14, we watch this take place. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Points to God's action for Israel. Verse 12, he said, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against his people. So the first thing he did is he pointed at God's action. The second thing he did is he reminded God, or well, God already knew, but he spoke to God about his mission, right? God wants to make his name great. And the Egyptians, he says, if you do this, the Egyptians are going to say things. So God, remember, you want to make your name great. And th uh, 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Then he goes to God's promises. He looks at God's action of salvation, God's missions of showing the, the nations who he is and God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he looks at these things and he says, God, relent. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God, they don't deserve it. Right? Because he knows. He instead says, God, I'm asking you based on who I know you are to relent. And so in verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. God had every right to end them. Moses prayed. And God responded to Moses' prayer. Meaning he did not end them. So for what it's worth, they're still going to have to face consequences. We're going to see that play out. But what's really interesting then is that Moses' response after this, him and Joshua come down from the mountain. Uh, they see them dancing and singing, right? They come into this scene and it's like, okay, Moses finally sees more clearly what exactly was happening. And so in Exodus 32, 19, after Moses actually sees, after he comes down from the mountain, it says, Moses' anger burned hot. Right? So what he was asking God not to do, he then does here in this moment. And he took the tablets that God had inscribed the law on and threw them on the ground as if to say, what worth is this if you are going to be these kind of people? They would still have to face their consequences, and so we'll watch them play out. You know what? It, when he sees this, he finally gets what is behind God's anger. It makes sense to him, and then, then he kind of has this same response as God. So remember their last words, right? Their last words to Moses were, Hey, Moses, tell him to stop talking to us. You go up, and by the way, everything he has said, we will do. And here, Moses encountered them and, you know, kind of engaged in this joyful debauchery at the foot of a false idol. So watch what he does. He wants them to remember this moment. Exodus 32, 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire. It's wood covered in gold. So he took it, he burned it with fire, ground it into powder, and scattered it on the water, and then made the people of Israel drink it. 
Right? He, he kind of creates this powerful cultural moment for them that will make them remember what it is that they did. And then Moses comes up to Aaron because he knows that Aaron was like supposed to be leading the people while he's up there on the mountain. And so, so watch Aaron's response to Moses. Exodus 32, 22 through 24. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, here's their fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So verse 24, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So Moses, they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Like, like, try to understand that for a second. Hey, Moses, like, gosh, I don't know how this happened. You know, like, yeah, they wanted gods, and, you know, I went around and I collected gold, and, you know, I was, you know, we're just putting it together, and I, I didn't mean to make a bull. I just kind of put it in, and the next thing I know, there was a bull there. There was a calf there, right? So, so what, just notice, like, what Aaron makes space for as the leader of this people while they're at the foot of the mountain, what he makes space for the people quickly run to, right? His apathy, his kind of indifference when they ask for these things. It's like all the people gravitate towards whatever he is the lid of, right? So this is true of anyone with any kind of spiritual authority, whether it's pastors or teachers or parents or elders. If a leader will allow it, people will give in to the pull, right? Because the pull is really, really powerful. The desire is really, really strong. And so if you have a person that you're discipling and you make allowance for something for them, guess what? It's going to be really easy for them to gravitate toward that thing. If you have a kid that you're trying to bring up and you kind of create space for them, it's going to be really, really easy for them to gravitate toward that thing. And so after this moment, those who are most clearly engaged in worshiping the idol, they do this thing where they start to rampage through the camp. They start to go crazy. Out of their debauchery, they start kind of running wild. And so Moses is going to put an end to this wildness of these people who are going crazy. In Exodus 32, 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he, he, he says, who is on the Lord's side? Right? He said, I've had enough of this. Let's determine now who is actually concerned about obeying God. Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So this is God's words, not Moses' words. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. He's, he's saying, the ones who are running wild, the ones who have been set free, you need to go and you need to stop it. You need to kill them. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses in that day. About 3,000 men of the people fell. Okay, so can we just really like deduce two very clear things about God's response here? Those two really clear themes that come out are anger and accountability. Right? It's laced all throughout this passage. God and Moses are angry. And the people need to be held accountable. Aaron needs to be held accountable. And so, for what it's worth, this is the end of our passage today. <laughs> like, there's, like, we want a they lived happily ever after. That's like, that's not here. In fact, the consequences keep going. 
Like we continue to see consequences play out and we see God's mercy in the midst of that. Right, but, but we need to sit with and recognize and not gloss over the fact that God is not ambivalent about our idols that keep us complacent. Like God does not just turn the other way when we have decided, okay, I've obeyed you as much as I can this week. I'm going to kind of give up now. Like God is not indifferent when we bend the knee to money or to sex or to power or to comfort or to our own pride. Because these things are the reason that his creation is corrupted. So God is intent on setting creation right. So intent that his anger burns hot against idolatry. And so what we watch with Moses is that he is so in tune with God that when he sees this idolatry among God's people, he gets angry too. Okay, so what do we do with this? So what? So what? Number one. Tests are the time to ceaselessly remind yourself of God's care and character. Tests are the time, this place, the FUD, the place where you are getting uncertain, the place where uh, things start to feel overwhelming. In this place, that is the time where you start to remind yourself of God's care and character. Start it then. Don't wait. Spend time in the word. Like make yourself really aware. Who is it that, that God is? Spend time in prayer. Spend time just letting yourself be washed over in the truths of who God is because that is the only thing that is going to draw your heart away from what it's naturally inclined to desire and actually towards the eternal God. So tests are the time to remind yourself of God's care and character. Number two. So uh, every week we talk about we, this is not just for us, right? We're not just here for us. We have to develop other people. God has called us not just to be uh, disciples who have been made, but we are disciples who become disciple makers, right? We have influence. We are called to develop. So how do we develop others constantly prone to idolatry? Right? What does this look like? We recognize it with the people we're trying to develop. Let's be really honest, though. We need to start with humility. We are all somewhere on that spectrum. We are all somewhere in the pole of an idol. And so, so when we recognize this and we're seeking to develop others at the same time, let's, let's talk about first how we develop Christians, believers in Jesus. So for Christians, number one, Early on in the process, so around test and desire, early on in the process, you are going to warn, right? You're going to be really clear to make warnings. Talk about the inclinations of desires and how, hey, those desires can be really overwhelming. And if you're not doing something right now to prepare yourself for that, you're going to get pulled in more quickly, right? So early on, whether they're in the test or whether in the desire, you're going to warn, you're going to make aware. If you're later on in the process, to disloyalty or even adoption of a particular idol. There's a, a space where you need to help a person see often what they are not able to see themselves, right? And you do this graciously and with mercy and you talk to them about it. You don't talk to other people about it without talking to them, right? But you go and you approach them and you, you say, gosh, there's something happening here that I am really concerned about. I want to help you see it. I don't know if you do. Right, And at the same time, I'm opening myself up to, to say, 
you know, what do you see in me, right? Like, I could be, the way that I'm saying this, there could be something wrong here, right? I, I'm open to hearing that, but I want to help you see it, and then I want to call you to repentance, right? I want to call you to turn away from this thing. This is a practice that we engage in with love, with one another. So for Christians, and then always in the process, whether you're early or late, you want to be a constant reminder of God's care and character to these people. Right, so that's for people that we're developing who claim the name of Christ. For non-Christians, it's a kind of a different story. For non-Christians, this is what I want to say. Like, we, we were all idolaters, right? Like, we all, sh- all worshipped falsely before we came to Jesus, right? So this is a, and let's be frank, we still tend to worship falsely after we have come to Jesus. So for those who are non-Christians, are, like, we just need to be sensitive to their test, so we respond differently to idolatry in Christians, and there may be times even when anger is justified. You've got to be careful with anger because it can point to other problems inside of you. But there, there are times when anger may be justified, and there are times when you express boundaries really, really qu- clearly, right? But with non-Christians, our goal is not to kind of whip them into some kind of moral shape, right? It's to show them a better God. Right? So that's why I say be sensitive to their test, Right, because their test is this time where fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and the pain of their life is, is kind of rising to the top for them. And that test is then for them a, an opportunity to love and trust and obey someone who is more powerful than their idol is. So seize that opportunity to tell them who God is. Okay, so we're going to transition into a time of communion. And I want to share some really, really good news with you. Like, despite your idolatry, God loves you. Like, his wrath still burns hot against idolatry. His anger and justice are still very real. But God is a way-making God. So Jesus, God in the flesh, come to earth, and he lived perfectly, and he worshipped rightly, and then he willingly died. And God's wrath towards idolatry was poured out on Jesus. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. And on the cross, Jesus took on himself the wrath that we deserve for our idolatry. And in this, God showed us two things. Number one, he showed us that, that he will not excuse corruption and idolatry, that his anger does still, in fact, burn against it. And that he so longed to be in relationship with us that Jesus would stand in our place and die to make idolaters clean. And then three days later, Jesus would rise from death and actually show us that he has the power to make us right with our creator. And one day, he's coming back to make the whole, whole world right. So, so if you're a non-Christian and you're listening or you're here in the room and you're, you're talking, you just, we're talking a lot about idolatry and different things. Like the God, I want you to hear this, the God that you have committed treason against, right? The God that you have put other things in his place, he is extending to you an opportunity to be made right with him. Right, so I would, I would simply beg you this morning, turn from your idolatry. Turn from your idolatry and start following 
Jesus, because for every person who does that, what we're told is that God says to that person, you are my child, you are clean, and you are forgiven. Turn from your idolatry and follow Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, and we looked at this pull of an idol, and there's like just something that jumps out to you, and you're like, yep, there it is. Like, I know exactly what that is. I tell you, Jesus loves you. Repent from your idolatry and rest in your Father's arms. And so if you're a Christian here today and you recognize that you yourself, you're just kind of constantly fighting against the pull of idolatry. You're you're not like there all the way into it, but you recognize all the time, I have to be careful. I have to remind myself of who God is. I have to keep fighting. I want to encourage you to keep fighting and remember God's care and character. Jesus loves you. You are God's child. You are protected by God. God is your gracious redeemer. Jesus is your healer and coming king. You are a part of God's family. No matter what you lose, you still have Jesus. In a moment, we're going to silently reflect together. And then after that time, uh, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll sing a song. And then we're going to eat and drink together the elements of communion that represent for us Jesus' broken body and Jesus' shed blood. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here with us or you're online, we just ask that you wouldn't partake because this is a uh, a practice for Jesus followers. This is a meal for Jesus followers because we are proclaiming very clearly that our identity is in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you as you as we partake together this morning and as we take this moment of silence to just be aware as there are various things in this world that are seeking to pull your heart. How is God pulling your heart? Take some time, let's be silent. Listen to him and respond to him in this moment. Let's be silent together.